So we're going to go on with Acts chapter 22. This is where Paul is now standing there in front of a crowd that were trying to kill him. And uh, he starts talking to them in Hebrew and they start giving him their undivided for a little bit. And uh, he makes this defense where he, he talks about his conversion. Let's, uh, let's just start with a prayer. Lord God, our Heavenly Father, we come to you to thank you for your word, to thank you for your work with your servant Paul, and to ask that you will work in our hearts, and that you also will bring us to convert to you and to your Son in the same way as Paul did, that we might follow him so that we might follow the Lord Jesus. Please help us all, Father. Be with those in particular needs and distress at this time, all sorts of people with their various issues and needs. And we pray that you'll work through all of these situations to bring us all closer to you and to your kingdom. For the sake of the Lord Jesus. Amen. Right, so, he says, brothers and fathers, hear the defense which I now make to you. So he's a Jew, and he's trying to to persuade these guys by saying, look, there's a bridge between you and me. We're all the same. And when they heard he spoke to them in the Hebrew language, they were even more quiet. So, if you want to connect with people, you've got to find a bridge between you and them. You've got to find some commonality between you and them. It could be that you, you had a similar experience, that you, you, you visited a certain country that they did. It could be that you lost a child and so did they. It could be that you went through five divorces and so did they, or whatever it might be. And he said, I'm a Jew. I was born in Tarsus of Cilicia, but I was brought up in this city, that's Jerusalem, at the feet of Gamaliel, instructed according to the strict manner of the Lord of our fathers, being zealous for God, even as you all are this day. So he says, I was born in Tarsus, but I grew up from a kid here in Jerusalem. Well, just work it out. That means that Paul would have been in Jerusalem at the time of the ministry of Jesus. When you read the Gospels, a huge amount of that material that is in the four Gospels happened in Jerusalem, particularly at the time of the Jewish feasts. So, for sure, Paul would have listened to Jesus preaching. He would have seen Jesus in the temple. He would have seen some of the miracles done. That helps us understand why Jesus says to him, When he appears to him on the way to Damascus, Paul, it's hard for you to kick against the prods. What he means is, I've been prodding you every time you heard me preach back there in Jerusalem, every time you saw me do a miracle. That was a prod, prod in your conscience. But you resisted it. And how hard it is, he says, for you to go against the prods. It's alluding to how an animal, like an ox, was guided in in ploughing a field by these prods, prod, 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 like you do with a horse, prod, go this way, prod, go that way. But Paul was like the animal that was kicking against that. Now, we've all had that, because Jesus loves us, and Jesus is involved in our lives, and the Lord Jesus wants us to go his way. And he doesn't force us, uh, he encourages us. And he's got the balance absolutely perfectly right. If he just picked up man or woman and forced you to go a certain way, we'd all complain, I have no free will. If, on the other hand, he's very distant and hands-off, 
well, we're so weak that we also won't go the way that we won't go his way. And so he has a perfect balance whereby he does not force you, doesn't railroad you. He encourages. He is also not far off from you. He does encourage you to go his way. And so this is what was going on with, with Paul, that there was the prod, 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 prod in his conscience. And he was going against it. And this is a miserable life. You see so many people whose lives are basically miserable because they are going against the prod. And no people who should get baptised into Jesus, but they don't. They resist it. And their lives are terrible because this happens and that happens and the Lord is prodding them and pushing them. Come on, come on. Oh, I don't want to. I'm stubborn. I'm proud. Or all that. Yeah. You're making life far more difficult than it needs to be. And life is, you know, hard enough anyway. So, he says, verse 4, I persecuted this way, and he means Christianity, to the death, binding and delivering into prisons both men and women. So Paul says that he had killed Christians. Later on, he's going to appear before another, uh, well, he is before the Jerusalem Jews, but later on he will appear before the Romans, and he will admit something else. He will say, I tortured, I tortured Christians unto death. So as time goes on, as Paul talks about his earlier life, he admits more and more. And this is a theme, I think, in spiritual life. That as you mature, you do recognize your own sinfulness more and more. And you see it in the way that Paul admits more and more as he talks about his earlier life. First of all, earlier he says, well, I persecuted Christians. Now he admits, I persecuted them to death. That is, I murdered. And later on he's going to say, I tortured them to death when you read through his letters chronologically and in the English Bibles they are not, the New Testament letters are not arranged chronologically they're just arranged in order of length when you read the, for example the Russian New Testament you find the order of the books in the New Testament is different because they've tried to arrange them chronologically and so when you read through Paul's letters Chronologically, That is, you read the early ones first and then the last one, which is what he wrote to Timothy when he's about to die. You can see this growth in realizing his own sinfulness. One of his early letters to the Corinthians, he says, I'm the least of the apostles. I'm an apostle, but I'm the least. All the other apostles are better than me. I was the, I'm the least. And he writes to the Ephesians and he says... I'm the least of all the saints. I'm the least of all the believers. Out of the whole church, I'm the worst. And then in Timothy, when he writes to Timothy and he's about to die, and he says, I'm about to die, he says, I am chief of sinners. I'm the worst sinner in the world. And yet also at the same time, you can see as you read his letters chronologically, you can see that he is more and more confident of salvation. 
He says, I know whom I have believed. I know that I shall be resurrected at the last day and I shall receive a crown of glory. I know this. I'm sure. I have no doubt. And I think that's how it, that is what it is to be a mature Christian. On one hand, to be completely persuaded that I will be saved. And yet, on the other hand, to be totally aware, more and more, of my own sinfulness. That's what it is. If you just on and on about, oh, visible me, I'm a sinner, I'm a failure, well, that's no good. Likewise, if you, like, oh yeah, I am awesome. I am this awesome, wonderful person. Well, that's rubbish anyway, because you're not an awesome, wonderful person, nobody is. Um, that's just, you know, woke kind of rubbish that we're all awesome, wonderful people. No, we're all mixed up, and you're mixed up, I'm mixed up, we all are. That's how it is. And you might as well face that and, and be, be realistic about it. So, <clears throat> Paul is a great example. He really is. And it's interesting that in the whole of the New Testament, you, you've got three accounts of his conversion on the road to Damascus. There's the one in Acts 9 where it actually happens. Here in Acts 22 when he explains it again and later on when he's going to explain it again to the Roman authorities. You think, why all this emphasis on, on Paul's conversion on the road to Damascus? Well, it's because he says, when he's writing to Timothy, he says, in me, most importantly, Jesus Christ set forth to all men a pattern for those who should afterward believe. In other words, he, Paul, was an example. He, he is like a parade example, a worked example of what it is to be converted. That he was going one way, persecuting Christians, etc., going against his conscience, but he goes 180 degrees the other way. And you wonder why that is, and cynics would say, ah, oh, that's because he felt guilty. Bad conscience, he's trying to put himself right with God by being so, so zealous, but I don't think so. Because he keeps talking about grace. And he's saying that if you've experienced God's grace, then it's a natural response to live a, a totally committed life in response to that gift. You can't save yourself by good works. You can't get a list of good deeds that you've done and brownie points and hopefully all your good points somehow cancel out all your bad sins. No. It, it, it can't be like that. Because... Salvation would then be by works. And Paul says, salvation is not of works, lest any man should boast. It is of grace, which means a gift, a free gift of God. So, it turns out that if you have experienced that grace, then you naturally will live another way. You will be zealous, yes, because of the wonder of the fact that I'm getting saved for nothing. Because... I'm going to be in God's kingdom. I'm going to live forever. Wow. And this life is just one little millimetre. I, who am just some small, very weak pile of dust and ashes and water. That's all we are. But I have been chosen by God when I'm not better than the guys next to me. I'm even worse, worse than them. But I have been chosen. Wow. That's so wonderful that I'm going to live forever when I shouldn't do, but I am. That is so wonderful that naturally you cannot be passive to that. 
You cannot say you believe that and, and be passive, like, oh yeah, I'm just going to live the life of anybody else. No. You are going to naturally, naturally commit yourself to him in your practical life. So he says, I persecuted this way to the death. He admits that he killed, he killed Christians. And again, just a, a note there, um, the, the Jews didn't have the right to give the death sentence to people. They did not have that right. Remember when they wanted to kill Jesus, they said to the Romans, look, we have a law. By our law, this man should die, but we, we, are, we are under you. We can't kill him. We ask you to crucify him. And so for Paul to say, I murdered Christians, he did this, if you like, as extrajudicial. Shh. Guys. He did this as a sort of extrajudicial murder. It was a criminal act that he just tortured people to death. You're not allowed to do that. Uh, uh, he did it big time. So he says, uh, uh, yeah, and you wonder why. Why was Paul so fuming angry with Christians? Why did he want to torture these people and kill them? Why? You know? It's because of his own conscience. Sometimes you're out there on the high street there, I'm out there with Spyro, giving out tracts and talking to people, so would you like to come to church, would you? I don't accept Jesus Christ as your saviour. And sometimes you get some guy turn around and start cussing you, swearing at you big time. You think, why? Why do you do that for? You know? If you're there giving out, I don't know, some flyer advertising something, I don't know, some special offer that's on in Primark or somewhere, you won't get that response. Why are some people so angry when you mention Jesus Christ? It's because they are struggling with their conscience deep inside. They are struggling with their conscience. And uh, that's it. In their conscience, they are struggling. Because there is this hole in the heart of every human being. They're struggling in their conscience. Struggling. And as I keep telling you every day, the easiest thing to do is just hands up, surrender. Just surrender your conscience to Jesus. Uh, Auntie Lois and I and Evia, we baptized a woman on Saturday. And she said, so she told us that Friday night she said, I, was, uh, I had a panic attack because I knew I was going to be baptized today. And I had a panic attack because I was, I just didn't, you know, I was so worried about surrendering. I realized that this meant surrender of myself to someone else, to Jesus. And yeah, that's how it is. It is a big thing to surrender. But what's the option? What's your alternative? Your alternative is nothing. Your alternative is just to go on, going against the prods of conscience. Just surrender. And so, he says, um, verse 5, As the high priest does bear me witness, and all the council of the elders, from whom also I received letters to the brothers and journeyed to Damascus, to bring them also that were there to Jerusalem in bonds to be punished. So he goes from Jerusalem to Damascus with chains, to put the Christians in chains and bring them to Jerusalem and punish them. And he says, it came to pass that as I made my journey and drew near Damascus about noon, 
Suddenly there shone from heaven a great light round about me. I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Well, he says that there shone a great light. And that great light was, of course, the, the manifestation of, Je- of the Lord Jesus. He later says that God has shined in our hearts to reveal the light of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So, what happened to Paul? This massive change, this great light of the Lord Jesus that came to him, and this change, 180 degrees, this, he says, is a pattern for all of us, that we likewise are to change completely. And so you ask yourself the question, well, has that happened to me? Now, not all of us had a Damascus Road experience. You do meet people who say, I was a, I was a murderer, I was a, a drug dealer, I was this terrible guy, and then I was walking down the high street, and wow, this light appeared, and I met Jesus. Well, I, I don't doubt when people say that happened, maybe it did. I can only say that it didn't happen to me, and I don't think it happened to many people. So, <clears throat> that change, therefore, that happens is absolutely, you know, more subtle, I would say. That there we were, a small little selfish people thinking in our own way, just wanting to do immediately what looks good to me, what feels right, what feels like going to be fun, and went through our lives like that, maybe not particularly sinful compared to other people, but that's how we were, and Jesus came into our life, and our life changed. But that change was not in five minutes. It was very dramatic with Paul, and it is with some people. I have to say it wasn't with me, and I think with most of us, it's not been just that dramatic. But that appearance of the Lord Jesus like a great light into the darkness of our own hearts, the darkness and pointlessness of our lives, that is just as true and real for, for us as it was for, for Paul. So he says, I heard a voice that said to me, Saul, why do you persecute me? Well, this is clearly the voice of Jesus saying, why do you persecute me? But, who was Saul persecuting? He was persecuting the Christians. He was persecuting Christians. And yet Jesus says to him, why are you persecuting me? So then, Jesus is his people. You see, when you're baptised into the body of Jesus... You become him. And whatever is done to you is done to Jesus. And he feels that. If you are beaten up, if you are rejected, if you are treated badly, that is what is being done to Jesus. God says about his people Israel, he says, He who touches Israel touches the apple of my eye. That is your, your eyeball, which is your most sensitive point on your body. So God says, if you touch Israel, you are touching the apple of my eye. I am very sensitive to that. And it is the same with the Lord Jesus. He's saying to Paul, what you did to those Christians, you, you tortured them, you uh, abused them, etc., etc., you did it to me. That is how he felt. And 
that's a great comfort that we are not alone. We all go through hard experiences at the hands of other people. And yet the point is that Jesus feels that. He feels that because we are in his body. And that's why Paul talks a lot about being in Christ. That's what he means, that we are in Christ, we are in the body of Jesus, we are secure in him, we have a sense of identity. (coughs) Otherwise in this world, we are just lost, basically. You you think you've got a family. A lot of people thought, oh, I've got a family, I'm alright, but... Mum and dad and brother and sister die or move away or there's an argument or separate. You think you found a partner and you have kids. That often doesn't work out. And so the world is full of lonely individuals. And yet we all desperately want some sense of belonging. People say, oh, I don't want that. But we all do. It's natural. It's normal. We are social creatures. We are made in that way. To want to belong to want to belong to something or somebody greater than myself. And there the human need is met by baptism into the body of Jesus Christ, that we are in him, we belong to him. We are like maybe a finger or an arm in this body of which he is the head. That's why when you're baptised, you go under the water, your body is like connected with his body. He died and he came up, he rose again, just like us. We come up out of the water and we live in him. So he says, verse 9, They that were with me saw indeed the light, but they did not understand the voice of him that spoke to me. And I said, What shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said to me, Arise and go into Damascus. There you shall be told all things which are appointed for you to do. So what shall I do, Lord? He calls this voice that he hears, Lord. He knows this is Jesus. And as I say, people know the gospel actually intuitively already in their heart. It's a case of just accepting that this is true. But when I could not see, he says, for the glory of that light being led By the hand, by those that were with me, I came into Damascus. So he he went blind. He went blind for three days. And that's how it is. That when you are converted, you become blind, in a sense, to the world. That you are dead to the world, in another figure. You walk, the the alcoholic walks into the uh, supermarket and seeing that wall of alcohol, Wall, you know what it's like in supermarkets. A whole wall of alcohol and another wall of the stuff and another wall of the stuff. You're blind to that. You see it, but you don't see it. And so it is with so many other things. You see that expensive car. You see that apparently smart life. And you don't see it. I'm not interested in that. I don't see that anymore. And that's how it has to be so that spiritually you might see you become blind so that you might see. That's the great paradox. So he comes into Damascus, verse 12, and one Ananias, a devout man according to the law, well reported of by all the Jews that dwelt there, came to me. And standing by me, he said to me, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And in that very moment, I looked upon him. Ananias was a Christian, a Jewish Christian, 
one of the very people that Saul was going to arrest to torture and murder. And he said, The God of our fathers appointed you to know his will and to see the righteous one, that's Jesus, and hear a voice from his mouth. For you shall be a witness for him to all men of what you have seen and heard. And now why do you delay? Arise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. So he says, why do you delay getting baptized? Well, that implies that Saul had already been challenged with this issue of baptism. And not by Ananias. Clearly, this was not the first time that he had encountered the gospel. Because, as Jesus said, it's very hard for you to push and kick against the prods of conscience. So why do you delay? And you see all the examples of baptism in the New Testament out of immediate baptism. Not like in a lot of churches, oh, you've got to go through six months of instruction and learning about all our particular uh, points uh, that we believe and our rules and bylaws and then you get baptized into the church. No. No, no. Baptism is a connection with Jesus. And it says, why do you delay? And when you have children, you want your kids to say yes straight away. And that is what God and the Lord Jesus want from us, that we might say yes straight away and not faff around or whatever. It came to pass, he said, that when I had returned to Jerusalem, and when I, while I prayed in the temple, I fell into a trance and saw him saying to me, make haste, get out of Jerusalem quickly, because they will not welcome your testimony concerning me. And I said, Lord, they know that in every synagogue I imprisoned and beat those that believed in you. When the blood of Stephen, your witness, was shed, I also was standing by and approved and guarded the robes of those that slew him. And he said to me, Depart, I will send you far from here to the Gentiles. So Paul's job was to preach to the Gentiles. And the Jews who were listening to all this, they listened until that word, that the gospel was to go to the Gentiles, that God was going to accept non-Jews. And then they started screaming throwing dust in the air, lifting up their voice, saying, away with such a fellow from the earth, and we'll pick up their God willing tomorrow. So for now, we're going to take the bread and the juice. The bread represents the body of Jesus, and the, the cup represents his blood. By taking this, we are showing that I want to be in Christ. I want to be part of him. I do not want to just be a free radical wandering the streets of this earth, with no connection. I want to be with him and in him. And as this little piece of bread becomes part of our body, so we are showing that I want him in me. I want my body to be part of his and his body to be mine. I don't want to be alone anymore in my own strength. I want to be with him and I want to live with him. And that's why the cup representing his blood his life. I want his life in my life. My life in his life. And it is in that sense that man is not alone, but Emmanuel, God with us. That's the idea. And because he lives, and he lives forever, we will also live forever because of him. So let's just give, uh, give thanks for, for these symbols. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this bread and for this cup in which we see the symbols of your dear Son, his body and his blood, his life. And we earnestly pray that we might be part of him and he might be part of us. 
now and forevermore, for his sake. Amen.